2: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri is a longtime friend of mine. He is the author of a brand new bestseller, The Tyranny of Big Tech, which we're going to talk about at length. I will post this over at my uh, podcast, the interview with Hugh Hewitt later today. Good morning, Senator. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Hugh. Yeah, you know I am in danger of uh, finding YouTube pulling my plug because talking to you is not exactly the world's safest thing to do when you're on YouTube. (laughs) That's very true. That's very true. Thank you for your courage. Yeah, well, I have no courage, but I have a lot of audience who will be disappointed if we don't get to a lot of stuff. So I'm going to dive right in with an unusual conversation starter, Lena Kahn a graduate of Yale Law School, as you are, has been nominated to join the Federal Trade Commission. Now, it was my experience when I hired Yale Law grads that they couldn't even prepare an APA-compliant comment on a (laughs) rulemaking. And yet, you and she are both diving into big tech's complexities. What do you make of that nominee, given her record of hostility to big tech?
0: Well, I actually think it's an encouraging sign from an administration that has otherwise thus far been pretty cozy with tech. You know, I've worried a lot about the sheer amount of money that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris took during this last campaign and that they had a history of taking over both of their careers. And Kamala Harris, when she was attorney general of California, was extremely tight with the tech industry, did zero to hold them accountable. And then as you just look at the amount, the piles of cash that, that tech poured into this administration to get them there. So this, I think, is an interesting nomination. Uh, she is uh, she has an interesting misconduct background, a a, a very uh, uh, tough on tech background and, and a lot of interesting thoughts, I think, about uh, antitrust enforcement. Uh, so we'll see.
2: OK, well, that that's what I expect. I think it's a very hopeful sign. And I am not one of those chorus of people who say she's too young. No, she's not. You're not too young. In fact, we need younger lawyers who are more willing to resurrect the antitrust of the past, as you do in your book, The Tyranny of Big Tech. Second. Oddball question to begin yesterday, and I want to leave with the news. Yesterday, the Oversight Board of uh, Facebook uh, continued the banishment of President Trump, former President Trump, from the uh, Facebook platform. Oversight Board, this is a direct quote, and it's not a joke. Oversight Board co-president uh, Helle Thorning-Schmidt, former prime minister of Denmark, sought to bolster the body's importance. Now, have you seen the the series Veep, Senator Holly?
0: Uh, You know, I'm familiar with it. I can't say that I've seen uh, any, many or maybe even any of the episodes here, but I I know know the series.
2: There's a recurring character in there, the prime minister of Finland. And when I read this, that the oversight president, uh, co-president is Helle Thorning-Schmidt, the former prime minister of Denmark. I was reminded it's just so absurd that the oversight board for a great American company is made up of 20 people, 15 of whom are from abroad. And, you know, Mike McConnell's over in a corner, Judge McConnell, trying to say, no, that's not how we do it. What did you make of yesterday's decision, and what do you make of this AirSATS Supreme Court within Facebook?
0: Well, you said it exactly correctly, Hugh, which is that, you know, I've, I've read the press coverage of this, which treats this oversight board as if it's, my goodness, an Article Three court. I mean, it's is a joke. It's a part of Facebook. I mean, this is, in my view... This is Facebook holding up a shiny object to say, oh, look over here. We're really being good citizens. We're policing ourselves, right? That's the classic monopoly. We're policing ourselves. You don't need to do anything. We'll be good citizens going forward. We set up this board. You look at the board's own uh, report of of what they found. They found that Facebook didn't follow its rules and procedures. It doesn't really have any procedures in place to govern the sort of of a punishment they meted out or to structure the sort of punishment they meted out to the former president. And they're basically doing whatever it is they wanna do, just making it up as they go along. And amazingly, after finding all of this, the board says, but basically go ahead. I mean, you know, just just, just do what you want, more or less. I mean, explain yourselves a little more, but go right on ahead. I thought it was a joke, to, to be frank with you. And I think it's just an elaborate distraction from their monopoly power and from the consequences of their monopoly power. And I, for one, refuse to be distracted.
2: Uh, now, I'm, we don't have to rush. The good news is we don't have to rush, and the tyranny of big tech is a bestseller, and I'm going to keep pushing it, and people need to go and buy it. But I want to play for you a little clip of a conversation I had with Mark Zuckerberg on this show on May 20th of last year. Now, I know Zuckerberg a little bit. I've had dinner with him. He's had dinner with me. He has met my wife. I like the guy. In fact, he reminds me of a member of my family who flies F-18s. Uh, he He's just a data-driven engineer, computer science side. So I have no personal animus. I like him. Uh, And I don't think you have personal animus. Am I right about that? Do you have any personal animus?
0: No, no, zero. None at all.
2: So this is all, this is, I want people to understand this is not a personal thing. This is just business in the old fashioned way. Actually, it's just all freedom. Here's what he and I talked about the oversight board last year. Can we play that clip, friends? People
3: want an independent organization that they can appeal to If they think that we're getting something wrong on content right so if if, you know people obviously really care about having the ability to have a voice and i really care about that that's a big part of why i created the company i don't think you create a a company like this that that empowers individuals if you don't believe that individual voice is, is really important um but then you get into all these very complex nuances like you know no matter what you think about about free expression or giving people a voice to you, you obviously aren't going to want to support you know, terrorist content or um, child exploitation or um, some of these really terrible things. Um, and, and you know, even U.S. tradition, which is the strongest free speech tradition in the world, you know, we have principles like you can't go into a movie theater and yell um, fire in the middle of a crowded theater because it could put people in imminent risk of physical harm. So the, all the debates then flow downstream from that to well, what is the, how do you define what, um, what is harmful and what isn't and how do you make it so that people can express as many possible things as, as they would like, um, but you just uh, try to cut down on the things that are truly gonna be dangerous. And those are they're, they're philosophical questions, they're political questions, they're gonna be debated for um, forever. And frankly, I understand why a lot of people would be uncomfortable that a, a single private company Um, would be making so many decisions about that. So we embarked on this process to create uh, a self-regulatory body, which we call the Oversight Board, and it's made of, to start, 20 uh, people from from all walks of life, um, former judges, um, former prime ministers, um, people who have run uh, nonprofits, uh, academics, and they come from from all different backgrounds. It's a very diverse group, but the one thing that they all have in common, and that we vetted them all for, is a very strong commitment to giving people a voice and free expression.
2: Have, have so you got a sense of how? Board, have you got a sense of how the conservative or the center right American political opinion makers have reacted to the oversight board yet?
0: Um, a, a little. Uh, it's, it, I mean, I think
3: this is, it's a new thing, so I think that there's people have questions about how it's gonna play out. I think uh, at this point, I, I think more people know where I stand on free expression. I mean, I gave this, this speech um, in, in Georgetown last year. I, I think at this point I've made um, some, some very hard uh, public decisions on, on coming uh, down pretty strong on the side of giving people a voice in free expression. So I think people kind of understand where I am on this. And now we've, we've established this new oversight board and I think that there is, um, you know, people have questions across the political spectrum about how will this board influence the process? Um, is it gonna be as strong on free expression as I am? Um, on the other side of the spectrum, I think a lot of people worry, is this really gonna be inappropriate? Um, is this gonna get to good outcomes? Because because Mark and the team were so focused on appointing people who, who believe so strongly in free expression. So I think that there, there are questions about how this will play out, Um, But the the announcement of the Oversight Board was never meant to be the the end of the process. I think this body will build its credibility over time by the rulings that it makes when people appeal um, decisions to it. And and it will rule over time, um, I imagine, uh, very thoughtfully and transparently, um, and and I I would imagine in in a way that will uh, be very protective of people's free expression.
2: Um, The most most piercing criticism I've heard is... I think
3: it'll establish its reputation that way.
2: The the, the most piercing criticism I've heard, and I'm not really much on content moderation. I'm much more libertarian than most. Is that of the 20 members, 15 are not Americans. Of the five, only one is an originalist. I know Judge McConnell, but he'll get rolled by 19 people. And do we really want 15 foreigners moderating content about American political discord? In other words... How in the world did we end up? It's almost like a new Coke moment. How did you, with your commitment at Georgetown, and even on Monday at the European speech, how did you end up with a group that most sort of free speech absolutists like me say, "Oh my gosh, that's not a free speech group. That's a bureaucracy like the EU." Well,
3: I think we're going to have to see how it, and, and I think it'll build its credibility over time through the decisions it makes. But, but look, I would encourage folks to uh, not oversimplify this to the point of saying that someone who isn't American can't care about free expression. I think that that um, is.
2: Uh, well, that would be is, stupid. That, 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 that would be stupid. But because yeah. but the American standard is the most rigorous in terms of allowing speech, as you said earlier, we are the most protective of speech in the world. And a lot of Europeans aren't. I mean, British label, libel laws are not. Particularly good. So, Josh Hawley, what did you make of his defense and my critique of the Oversight Board? Because I, I think now it's a young sapling they should pull up by the roots. It's a disaster.
0: It is, it is a disaster. I thought the most telling comment was what Zuckerberg said toward the beginning of, of his interview there, that people want something to appeal to. Well, yeah, Well Naturally, they do. How about this? How about a court? How about you allow folks to actually enforce Facebook's own terms of service? against the company. I mean, I think it's a joke. You Right now, Facebook has these terms of service, so does Google, YouTube, Instagram, et cetera. They have these terms of service. You, you agree to them when you sign up to become a user. They're totally unenforceable, thanks to Section 230. If they deplatform platform you in violation of the terms of service, you can do absolutely zero about it. Why not allow people to go to a real court and actually have their day in court? And why not actually put the, the 230 standard, which requires good faith? in takedown decisions, good faith in deplatforming decisions, why not actually put that back in the law? The courts have read it out, Why not put that back in the law and allow people to say, wait a minute, you didn't deplatform me in good faith. You didn't follow your own terms of service. I want to have my day in court. That's what I would do instead of some made up fake court within Facebook that Facebook controls.
2: Now, I've got to pause there. One of the reasons I like the tyranny of big tech so much is I learned some things I did not know, one of which is that Section 230 effectively eviscerates terms of uh, service. I did not know that, Josh Hawley. And I know this stuff a little bit. I mean, I've read Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which is a neo-Marxist critique that takes forever to get through before I got to the, you know, you are the lamplighter along the forest path that she she carved through the wilderness of big tech law. But I did not know that Section 230 eviscerates uh, the terms of service. That's news to me.
0: Yeah, basically what, what 230 does is there's, 230 has a good faith requirement in it. It's a 230 Section C2, not to get too in the weeds here, too, but it is an important point. There is a good faith requirement that says that the publishers or the platforms rather can take down Content. They can moderate content, including takedown decisions, but they've got to do it in good faith. Here's the thing. Courts have, over the last 20 years, courts have essentially read that out of Section 230 by saying that actually a different provision of 230, Section 231, C1, covers every decision. Justice Thomas actually had an opinion in the Malware Bites case recently this last term, in which he sets this out really, really well, and he walks through how courts – have effectively rewritten Section 230 to give ever more power and deference to the tech companies. I think one of the things we can do on censorship is let's get back to actually what 230 was supposed to do, which is there's supposed to be a requirement that you act in good faith when you enforce your terms of service, that you don't discriminate on the basis of political viewpoint, and people ought to be able to enforce that. Essentially, they can't do that now. And I think that's a change we should make give people the power to go to a real oversight board, namely a court that is truly independent and have their day in court if they've been wrongly deplatformed.
2: So in your view, Senator Hawley, should Facebook simply eliminate the oversight board? It is kind yeah. of now a fig tree uh, with no leaves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They should eliminate it. I think it's a joke. And by the way, I, that, that is no, this casts no aspersions on anybody who serves on the board. Uh, I, I also know Michael McConnell. i work worked for Michael McConnell, Judge McConnell, I was and, uh, bring that Highest <laughs> respect for him. So, and I thought, you know, I mean, I don't want to comment too much on anything he said because I think he's in a very tough position here. But I did notice that he seemed to be a voice crying in the wilderness yesterday uh, during the, when this when this news was rolled out. I thought that that what you heard from McConnell was emphasizing that Facebook actually followed none of its own rules, followed none of its own procedures. And that what the board was telling was, you actually should, you know, like come up with a real procedure and follow it. I mean, you should just make the step up as you go along. But he seems to be totally drowned out by everybody else on that board who just says, oh, you know, basically whatever. I mean, Facebook, just do as you like. You don't have to explain yourself. And I just come back to the fact, you, this is classic monopoly. Behavior, when you don't have to actually appeal to your consumers anymore, when you can tell 75 million Americans uh, who voted uh, for a conservative candidate for president and for Congress, etc., when you can tell those people, we don't really care what your views are, we can take you for granted, you know you've got a monopoly.
2: Now, there are three Bush judges for whom it is impossible to overstate my admiration. The chief justice for whom you work, Judge McConnell and Judge Ludick. And so this is not personal in any sort of way. I understand the temptation to try and do missionary work in hostile situations. That's why I appear anywhere at any time that contract does not forbid me to debate Democrats. But he made a mistake joining this board because he is the uh, outward facing appearance of seriousness with regards to free speech. And I don't know that he should lend his credibility to it. What do you think?
0: Well, I, you know, I don't want to give him advice. I will just say that, that uh, I think the board, after, after yesterday's decision, I think it's clear that this board is a fig leaf for Facebook. I think it's clear that Facebook is going to do whatever it wants. Did you notice, by the way, Hugh, that, that the board asked a number of questions of Facebook and asked for information about how they reached the decision to, to deplatform the former president, how they, uh, what procedures they followed? And Facebook stiffed them. Dipped their own board on a number of these questions. This said, no, we're just not going to give you any of that information. We just don't, we're not going to we're not going to provide it. it. I think it just shows you Facebook itself isn't serious about this board providing any oversight. They just want to have their decisions blessed, and they're just going to make it up. Facebook is as they go along. And they can get by with it because they're a monopoly. And I think we've got to zero in on that monopoly power and do something about
2: that. And by the way, uh, when you read the age of big the tyranny of big tech, Senator Hawley's new book, you will not find any personal animus towards anyone. Monopolists act in a certain way. If I could get a monopoly on radio, I would take it. If I could be the only talk show host in America, somehow figure out how to do that, I would grab that because they're very valuable. It's actually rational economic behavior. To seek out monopoly, Senator Hawley, it's not personal to call people out on it. It's what you and I would do if we had the opportunity.
0: Well, this is why it's important. To, this, this is why we, when we think about monopoly, Hugh, we think about the structure of our economies and why actually confronting monopoly is, is, is pro-free market. It is market reinforcing. You know, I mean, this is to your point. I mean, if you allow these folks, it, it's not that they have ill will. Uh, it, it's that they are they're trying to, to turn a profit and they're trying to get a corner on the market. And when they've got a corner on the market, by golly, they're going to keep it. And by the way, Mark Zuckerberg and these other folks who I think are woke liberals, I think they're honestly woke liberals. Those are the, that's their view. Those are their political views. And when they have power, like they have power now, they're quite naturally going to try to project that power and to advance their own political agenda. And that's what they're doing. I don't, I don't think that they're bad people for doing that, but I do think it is dangerous to allow monopolies to exist, to allow monopolies to exert political power, and we need to do something about it. We've done that before in our history. We know what to do, and now we need to do it, which is, I think, to break these companies up.
2: Okay, this is our, um, A, I agree with that, but B, I disagree with your description of Mark. And now, again— I've only met him twice and had conversations. I do not think he's a woke liberal. I think he's a profit-maximizing rational economic actor who doesn't know much about politics and very little about political theory and who could care less because he's in the business of building an empire. And that he acts like every other Napoleon I've ever met in any other area. Uh, In fact, there are quite a lot of characteristics which are similar to Donald Trump in the way that Mark Zuckerberg acts. And all billionaires alike, maybe. But let's not get off the path. I want to go back to the tyranny of big tech. And I want to begin with Section 230 immunity and and some of the ideas I've been nurturing. I want to know what you think about them, because you obviously have thought about this. First of all, we're talking on an FCC-regulated platform. That means I can't say certain things without being fined. You can't say certain things without being fined. I'm a heavy regulated heavily regulated entity operating in a government-moderated world. Therefore, Section 230 to me seems to be a, a, view, a form of content discrimination that is itself unconstitutional because it prefers that set of platforms over this platform. Have you thought that through?
0: You know, that's interesting. I have it here. That's an interesting point. I mean, it's certainly true that the effect of 230 is to give the digital platforms – a, a, a definite advantage and a special immunity that, as you point out, no other media platform, no other publishing platform gets even close. I mean, so it, it, it's absolutely true and, and I think obvious that, that they get that immunity. Now, the, the fact that, that what that disparate treatment might amount to legally and constitutionally I think is a really interesting point and really worth exploring. I'll just point out that when Section 230 was written back in the mid-1990s, these digital platforms didn't exist as we know them today not by a long shot i mean so a lot of times you hear uh, the, the the big tech defenders say well you know congress meant to bless and protect these digital platforms oh, that's really not true i mean these platforms facebook didn't exist at all uh, google i don't think existed yet at all and certainly they weren't the platforms that they are today so they've really these companies have really bootstrapped 230 to protect them as now these massive media conglomerates in a way that just simply was never intended by that law.
2: And I believe some little radio station, one station ownership, ought to bring that lawsuit with Alliance Defending Freedom or the Beckett Fund and argue that, in fact, there is content discrimination being advanced by Section 230, and it's unconstitutional. But let me go to my second big question, which you don't deal with. Although you put forward the factual basis, as does uh, 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 Shoshana Zuboff, Facebook is so dominant in their marketplace that they are actually a company town. And I teach March v. Alabama every year that I teach con law, which is 24 out of the last 26 years, where private sector actors can become government actors when they so overwhelm the space in which private individuals live. They have to be held up. It's the duck rules. If it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, looks like a duck, it's a duck. Do you think the actions of Facebook or the actions of Google, but especially Facebook, given its market dominance, are in fact state action to which state action doctrine can be applied?
0: Well, it, it, they're certainly getting close. I think. I mean, Hugh, it, 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 they're getting closer and closer and closer, and their sheer dominance, I think, is is pushing them into this realm. And and I will say that uh, my Democrat colleagues in the Senate, what you hear from them, if you listen to their rhetoric, is they they essentially intend to and I think want to treat Facebook and Google, which owns YouTube, et cetera, they want to treat these companies as extensions of the state. I mean, they really have fallen in love, I think, with the monopoly power that these companies have, and they want to double down on it, and this is why you hear them saying, well, you need to censor more, you need to have more restrictive speech content, you need to use your power to do XYZ, and if you listen to them, it really sounds like turning these companies into extensions of the state, such that you you would have a, a state action issue. So I think that's an interesting point, and I think they're
2: probably on the path. Uh, I am actually not against expropriation of some of these companies, uh, Senator, because I believe they have FCC-like power at Google over YouTube. And if you're going to have FCC-like power, you've got to be subjected to – constitutional norms. And so I I am not afraid of anything because this is a new issue. And you rightly discuss in uh, The Tyranny of Big Tech, the last time we confronted this new issue, Teddy Roosevelt, small R Republican and large R Republican, led the way to establish the individual against concentrations of power, both in government and in the private sector. Are you resurrecting that tradition successfully?
0: Well, I don't know if it's successfully, but I'm certainly trying to resurrect it. I mean, what I'm pointing out is that we as conservatives and, and uh, Republicans have a long history of being trustbusters. It's part of our DNA. And uh, by the way, the public understands this. Our voters understand it. I can tell you because I hear it all the time at home in Missouri. People say – you know, we need to be trust busters again. Uh, Nobody likes monopolies. People like the market. They like competition, Hugh. I think that's also in our DNA as Americans, certainly as conservatives. We believe in competition in a free and open market. That is not what we have with big tech. It's not what we have by a long shot. And there's a rich political tradition there when it comes to trust busting that runs back actually all the way to the American founding in terms of protecting the ideals of our founding. But what Roosevelt was so strong on uh, in his day, the Republicans of his day was understanding that trust busting is really a part of protecting our heritage of self government. They linked trust busting and self government, trust busting and the power of the everyday, normal, hard working American to have some authority in government and authority uh, in society, and that's the that's the right linkage. I think we got to recover that as Republicans. If we're for liberty. Monopoly and liberty don't go together. And so for that reason, we're going to set ourselves against monopoly to protect liberty.
2: Now, the reason I think Teddy Roosevelt figures so much in the tyranny of big tech is that Senator Hawley's first book, long before he was an attorney general, long before he was a senator, was about TR. And you obviously put that scholarship to work in the tyranny of big tech and in the political theory underneath it. I don't think you lose anyone the way that uh, Shoshana Zuboff did. By the way, have you read The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, the, the neo-Narkey? Okay. market it, it is 800 pages Of neo-Marxist critique, but her research is very compelling. I can't wait to talk to her because she has the goods on these people.
0: Yes, she does. No, it's a terrific book. It's a terrific book and one that everybody who's interested in this and cares about it should read. because She has done really uh, Gilman's work in in getting at the origins of these companies and then also just isolating their model, which is uh, I call it the addiction model, addiction, uh, the addiction economy that they want to create. And she's terrific on that.
2: So let's begin in the point of data that you share with her, which is the addiction economy. And I want to begin with the harm to children specifically. Pages 77 to 80 of The Tyranny of Big Tech, uh, depression and addiction. Among those aged 10 to 24, the suicide rate increased by 56% in the decade leading up to 2017. I want to repeat that. For the age of 10 to 24, according to the CDC, the suicide rate increased by 56% in the years 2007 to 2017. By the way, adults are similarly addicted. They have similar problems, but I'm focusing on children, and this mixes up some minor with some young uh, majoritarians. But nevertheless, do people understand that, uh, while you say correlation is not causation, there is a real public health issue here, Senator Hawley?
0: Major public health issue. I think parents understand it, but it's still something I think we haven't really yet grappled with and, and Tech's role of this. I mean, if you look at the data... You see this this correlation between social media use and, frankly, the rise of these mobile platforms, or the phones that, of course, have become gateways then to social media, and symptoms of depression, isolation, alienation, and then also suicide. Among, As you point out, Hugh, it's, it, it, it's among all age groups, but it's particularly – particularly noticeable and worrisome among young people. And to, and to be honest, to isolate any further, among young females in particular. Social media use appears to be particularly harmful in large quantities to young women, particularly hurtful to young women. That's what the data would suggest. And the, the scale at which this is true is really, really frightening. And I think it's something that we I try to set out the, the, the statistics in the book, and you have just referenced some of them, in order to help people focus on the fact that there are major externalities, to use an economic term, major externalities to the addiction model that these companies use to make their billions of dollars.
2: Now, this is where I think you're going to win with the tyranny of big tech. If you talk to your colleague, Senator Romney, the first time I sat down with him, very first question he asked me in the governor's mansion in Massachusetts in 2005 is, are you a grandparent? And I was not yet. I am now. And I have three kids about the age, three grandkids about the age of your children and I didn't understand why he asked that. And he explained your whole worldview changes when you become a grandparent because your timeline gets much, much broader. And he's right. I'm not thinking about grandchildren. And I don't want them anywhere near – they're too young for devices. I, I, I'm going to advise, but it is the, the benefit and the burden of grandparents to have all the advice in the world to offer, and none of it need be taken. But I don't want any device near my grandkids. It's a data collection machine. It's an information packaging. It's a signaling device. It's terrible for kids. Do you think you persuade people of this?
0: I hope so. And, you know, my own journey on this began with having children, Hugh. I mean, when my wife and I had – we have three, three children now – Uh, eight, six, and six months uh, of age. And when we had our eight-year-old, our oldest boy, you know, initially we we sort of thinkingly gave him an iPad and and we thought, not when he was a baby, but but pretty early on. We thought, well, our our friends do it. We hear this great educational benefit. And we noticed that his behavior, he became so attached so quickly to the interactive nature of that device and and was deeply distressed if he was separated from it. And we very quickly said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this, is this really healthy? And we began our own journey of looking into the data, looking into the research, talking with other families. So we've now gone to the, to the other side where our kids, again, at 8, 6, and, of course, our baby, but they don't, they don't have mobile devices, of course, of any kind of their own. We don't allow them to be exposed to that. They, we don't allow them to be exposed to social media. We try to limit their screen time overall. And all of that is because of, as you look at the, the, the data and the evidence here, it is startling how it rewires how these these social media platforms rewire a kid's brains um, how they they cause us because they are addiction machines they cause us to need the constant stimulation and the constant social reinforcement of being on the platform of getting a like of getting a retweet uh, that kind of engagement and look what i point out in the book is that this is a happenstance these platforms are designed this way they've got the best engineers in the world working at these platforms to try to, among other things, create an experience that is truly addictive so that we will need to be on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube more and more and more. And, and that's scary you.
2: Oh, I, I agree. I laugh when I'm on airplanes and I see parents hand unruly children a device. It's the new Benadryl for long country uh, cross-country flights uh, where parents used to give children Benadryl, to, you know, kind of get them drowsy and sleepy for a long. Now, if they're going overseas, now they get a device and they become quiet little uh, drugged up kids who go into their zone. And I didn't know that that was bad until I read the Ruboff book. And you have found the most important studies to repeat. So that leads me to this. Um, we have state's attorney general pursuing at this moment anti- uh, 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 damage cases against opioid producers in much the same way that they produce damage cases against cigarette manufacturers and want to pursue gun manufacturers. Causation theories are dangerous, but I don't th- think that there's any doubt about the the causation theory to be advanced. Do you expect some of your former colleagues to advance damage cases against social media for the addictive behaviors they are promoting and the public health costs with which those behaviors are associated?
0: I, I think it's very possible, especially as the data continues to pile up, and, you know, I, I say in the book that yes, this is what the studies show so, so far is correlation rather than causation. And I could say as a, as a former prosecutor, by the way, I filed one of those suits against the opioid manufacturers when I was attorney general of at Missouri. So I, I know what's involved there in proving causation. And uh, I, I certainly argue there's definitely causation in the pharma cases and I, I think that here you know this, these companies they need to be they need to be very careful about what they're doing and own up to it and this is one of the things that, that so far I, I see them taking very little responsibility Facebook Google a uh, very little responsibility for the addictive nature of their products they've only barely begun to admit that they actually designed the products to be addictive I mean for years they've resisted even that Said, oh no 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 we just we just want a better user experience. That's just nonsense. It's not about, as, as former engineers at Google, uh, like Tristan Harris, for instance, who now is out there talking about, he's a former Google employee, talking about how Google deliberately designed and programmed their products to extract massive amounts of data to addict you and keep you on the platform as long as possible so they could get your data and sell you stuff. I think the more that that evidence piles up and the more the, the, the harms in suicide, depression, and other public health issues pile up, the more danger these companies are going to be in, and rightly so.
2: There is no magic bullet to this problem, but if there was one, it would be called citizen standing. Now, this is getting into the weeds, and I need you to explain it to people, but wherever I have encountered citizen standing to bring uh, damages suit uh, or in the Endangered Species Act to bring cases to enjoying government action, it flourishes, and the trial bar senses that they smell the money. And so, if you need to bring big tech to heel, you just need to give citizens standing to the trial bar to go after them for the damages they inflict. Do you think you would find sixty senators to support that and a majority in the House of Representatives?
0: You know, I, I would. I don't know the answer, but I would hope so. And i propose proposed creating a private right of action to to allow individual citizens to do something much like this. And this goes back to what I would do with Section two thirty is that I would allow individuals to bring suit. To enforce the terms of service and to enforce a good faith requirement, and I would give them uh, standing to do so and, and create a private right of action explicitly, so there's no question that they can get into court and be able to uh, to enforce those terms uh, and to enforce uh, the uh, the requirements of federal law. So uh, to me, this is rather than trying to devise elaborate regulations. Uh To superimpose on these businesses rather than than trying to to tell them uh, you know you need to to tweak this part of your business model or that part of your business model, I just think it's better to put power into the hands of of consumers and citizens and allow them to go into court and to uh, vindicate their own rights. I, I think if we did that, I think you'd see real change of behavior. from these
2: And the second-order consequence of that is media attention to jury verdicts. And media attention to jury verdicts always brings attention to the underlying problem and, therefore, additional state and federal legislative correction. That's why citizen standing and private rights, uh, private cause of action, are so powerful It's the most powerful policy recommendation in the tyranny of big tech, and I encourage people to to read it for that reason. Now I want to move into politics. Ross Douthat, who I admire greatly, wrote a column this week where he suggested that President Trump's administration was an accelerant on the division in America. And I have enormous respect for Ross, but he has misdiagnosed the problem. President Trump is a symptom of the accelerant. The accelerant is social media. And I think you make this argument— at great length about how social media bypasses all the ordinary circuit breakers that we have in conversation and debate, how it is ubiquitous, how it is addictive. What do you think? The accelerant on division in the United States was it Trump or is it social media?
0: Oh, social media is, is by far, I think, the the most divisive thing that has entered the public sphere of internet politics uh, in in my lifetime. I mean, certainly, and, and it has been it has been profoundly profoundly destructive on the whole, I think, as a political influence. And it, I, I think as we continue to see the evidence for that pile up, it just gets harder and harder to argue with. I mean, we know that just look again at the way that these that these platforms are designed. We know that with YouTube, for instance, that the way that its algorithm is designed that recommends videos to people, what they try to do is they categorize folks based on, on all the data they've collected about you, but they categorize you based on what they think your interests are and what your interests should be. And the, the effect of that is to silo folks off into different camps pretty much as soon as you come on the platform. And so the videos that they recommend to you, if you, turn on your autoplay on YouTube, the videos that they recommend to you are not only going to be partisan, not only going to be in your silo, but what reporting has shown, I, I talk about this in the book, is that they tend to become ever more extreme. Because, of course, they need to keep your attention. So, they need something that's new and stimulative in order to keep you online. So, you know, if you're a leftist and, and, you, and you go online, maybe you start with seeing videos about Joe Biden. And then after a while, you're seeing videos about eco terrorists. And if you're on the right, you go online, you're seeing Trump videos. And then it ends up with some white supremacist nonsense, garbage. So, you know, that's the kind of extremism that gets pushed by, by a function of how these businesses operate. Because, again, they're trying to addict. They need your attention. And that's just tip of the iceberg here. I mean, that's before we get to the part that people now can comment with a sense of anonymity. There's, there's less and less face-to-face contact. Um, it, it, it encourages cancel culture. I mean, it, it has really been, I think on the whole, social media has been highly, highly destructive to public discourse, debate, and our norms of civility. I just don't think there's any doubt about that.
2: Now, in the tyranny of uh, big tech, what you just said is detailed, especially at pages 86 to 7. I want to quote. Now heavy social media users are taking their outrage with them into the workplace, the neighborhood, the church. In short, to those actual communities made up of actual people that had once been havens from the outrage by algorithm of online culture, but were now increasingly subject to its contagion. Social media is a Republic, uh, Republican nightmare, small r, small r. It divided the public undermined a sense of shared fate, and stoked the perpetual anger. So, Senator Hawley, difficult question. January 6th, which you have condemned, but with which you are associated, and we'll come back to that. Was that a consequence of Donald Trump's rhetoric, or was it a consequence of the social media accelerant that brought those people together on the mall?
0: Well, you know, I think one of the things that is telling about the riot at the Capitol on that day and let's not whitewash it here. I mean, it is, it is a criminal riot that occurred there. And I think what, one of the things that you see that's interesting is you look at some of the, the, the video uh, of, of the rioters inside the Capitol. A lot of them have their phones out, and they are filming themselves, and they are taking selfies, and they're posting to social media. That tells you something about our current culture and social media's role in it, that the sort of performance nature of it all. You It's know, sort of like, oh, he, here I am in the midst of this. Of this criminal act, and I'm performing for social media. You know, let's stop and get a selfie of me doing this. Let, let, let's post this uh, on my profile. There's something about, and of course, you saw similar things in the rioting uh, last summer in in various cities across the country. Uh, th- there's something about the 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 performative nature of social media that uh, encourages, I think, ever more extreme behavior. And, and that's before we even get to the part about the extreme speech and how, again, it, it silos people and it pushes more extreme content to them. But uh, I do think that social media's role in dividing the country, um, in encouraging uh, ever more extreme and hateful rhetoric, and then in encouraging this, this kind of, of constant performance, even violence as performance, uh, is it, something that we've got to reckon
2: with. Now, I do not want to immunize my own business from this uh, impulse. In fact, all of media is being driven by monetization pressures to try and get 100% of the 3% of their side of the world. That's why television ratings are falling. The 100% of the 3% on the left and the 100% of the 3% on the right are not enough to support a television audience. On this radio show, I try and get 10% of the 100%. That's a completely different dynamic. Social media lives, on the impulse to seek ever smaller niches of people who will like you. And I do mean that in terms of the button that you push or the retweet that you get. This uh, evolution of behavior has got to be broken, or we are doomed not just to silos, but to tribes that are armed continually. Senator Hawley, we're going to make the Afghan... Uh, ungovernable areas and the Pakistani ungovernable areas look tame because we're better armed than they are.
0: Yes, that's right. And and, and I think that, again, just, just the – if you look at the dynamics that social media encourages and enables, which is uh, it, it encourages rhetoric that is, that is not tethered to face-to-face relationships. And all the data on this, Hugh, and I walked through some of this in the book, shows that when we have conflicts in person, you know, in our normal lives and we have conflicts with someone – it tends to, or the conflict tends to be mitigated by in person contact. It tends to be mitigated by personal relationships, and this is how we've traditionally solved our problems. This is why deliberation typically happens in person, right because there is an interpersonal nature to it that is healthy where you think, well, I might really, 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 really disagree with this person or be very, very angry with what they've said about me, but, but I also know them personally. And so you know I might just give them the benefit of the doubt or at least be able to have some sort of a rational conversation with them. Social media, not only is that not possible, the whole point is you don't have to see and know any of these people. The whole point is you can just go and shout at them with a megaphone and then get other people to gang up and shout at them and never have to deal with them otherwise. And there's been lots and lots of studies done on this, that the cumulative effect of that is more screaming, more shouting, more division, less deliberation. And for a republic like ours that's built on the control of the people over their government and the power of the people to deliberate together, introducing this dynamic that social media does, I think, again, is, it's, it's really harmful.
2: The deliberate together part, Senator, is gone. And and now I want to turn to what happened to you. Uh, people talk about cancel culture. You actually were canceled by my publisher, Simon & Schuster, which uh, published The Fourth Way. And I like Carp, and I love everyone at the team. He's the publisher at Simon & Schuster. They canceled this book, and full disclosure, it came to Regnery, which is the best thing to happen to Salem Media, which owns Regnery, in a long time in the publishing niche because we're going to sell a bazillion books because it's a good book. And it's now a totem as well of free speech. But you are also paying a price. You are being identified with the criminal riot, the insurrection, because of your photo, a famous photo now, of raising your fist. And I want to ask you what you intended to message there and whether or not you're aware of what's happening as a result of the woke media's attempt to ruin you right now.
0: Well, first of all, I'm absolutely aware of what the the media has tried to do and tried to cancel me. And this is why I say that one of the reasons it's so important that this book be published, and I'm so grateful to Regnery uh, for publishing it, is that with this current environment of cancel culture, it only succeeds if you agree to be canceled. It only succeeds if people are cowed into silence out of fear and if they agree to bow down to the woke mob. And I said back in January – I'm not going to do that. I am not. I refuse to be canceled. I refuse to bow down to the woke mob. I refuse to accept their rewriting of history and their attempt to to silence any dissent. And I continue to watch, you know, this administration and uh, that while they talk about unity, here they have pursued policies and gone after critics in a way that is anything but unifying. And they surely know that. And I think this effort to to silence dissent in the in a way that that uh, the liberal press has, has participated, not only participated, but has eagerly, eagerly uh, ex- tried to accelerate this process and tried to carry it out, is, is really something, it's really startling, and I think really, uh, really, really dangerous.
2: So, so let me follow uh, up, Senator. Yeah. What were yeah, you ahead thinking ahead. when you raised your fist?
0: Right, so to, to, to get back to that, so I was up, I, that was on my way into the uh, into the House chamber on, on the day, on January the 6th, before the certification process began. I was crossing the plaza there Hugh, and there were lots of demonstrators there at the Capitol, peacefully. They were standing, this is on the east side of the Capitol now, just to orient folks, the side that faces the Supreme Court. The demonstrators were uh, off of the plaza. They were standing behind the police barricades on the far end of the plaza. So I wasn't close enough to talk to any of them, but they were there waving American flags. And as as I was walking across, uh, they began uh, you know, calling to me, waving at me, so I waved back, and uh, I gave them a thumbs up, and I, I raised my fist, as I often do, uh, sort of fist pumping. And what I was doing there, Hugh, was just saying, hey, th- good for you for being here. You have every right to be here and to protest and to demonstrate. And I will say this, Hugh, I defended the right of the BLM protesters to protest, even though I didn't agree with their ideology. I did that all last year, and I said there's a difference between those who exercise their First Amendment rights to demonstrate and those who engage in criminal acts of violence against police officers, against federal property, uh, against private businesses. And I think that's true whether you're on the right or the left. So I don't regret at all supporting demonstrators who are peacefully exercising their right to protest, but nor will I give any quarter to those who engage in criminal acts of violence for whatever reason, I don't care what your rationale is. I'm a former prosecutor. If you break the law and you assault cops and you attack federal buildings, you're a criminal and you should go to jail for that.
2: Now, Senator, just to follow up, one more point on this. Yeah. Um, I have a friend, Jan Janera, who is always telling me you can't smile enough when you're on television. Always smile, even if it's someone is insulting your family. Smile, <laughs> because if you have a grim visage, that will be cut and pasted. When you raise your fist, you have a grim visage. Do you regret that grim visage? If you'd smiled and raised your fist, we'd never have seen the photo. Well,
0: uh, actually, probably the the parts where I were smiling, I'm sure there are other pictures here. I mean, I walked for some distance. So uh, I, I think it's probably no accident that this is the particular photo that whomever the, the photographer was chose to to put out there to the press. But listen, I, I, don't, I don't regret... Uh, supporting the the right of the demonstrators to protest, and I have resisted very fiercely, and I'll continue to do so, equating every demonstrator who was in Washington that day or up on Capitol Hill that day with the criminal rioters. That is simply not true. There were tens of thousands of demonstrators in the city. There were probably thousands and thousands up on Capitol Hill to say that those people were all criminals and that anybody who was there or wanted to be there was a rioter and should be punished is a terrible slur on those people, and it's just factually wrong. I mean, I've heard the FBI director himself say this, that, that those who came to – overwhelmingly, those who came to Washington, those who protested demonstrated, did so peacefully. We've got to maintain the distinction between those who do these things peacefully, whether we agree with them or not and those who commit criminal acts of violence. And so I will continue, as a First Amendment guy, I will take my stand there every single time.
2: Now, there's a big difference between you and me. You were a prosecutor. I worked at the Department of Justice, and I always tell people that doesn't make me a prosecutor, nor did I stay at a Holiday Inn. But I always tell people (laughs) that when allegations are made about election fraud, there are allegations. They must be followed by evidence. Then they must be filed by arguments that are heard by fact based uh, uh, jurists or juries that result in rulings that end up in judgments. We never got beyond the allegation fade on voter fraud anywhere, anywhere. And do you believe that anywhere there was demonstrated a level of fraud such that would cast into doubt the result that we now have recorded in the history books for any state?
0: I'm not aware of any of, I'm not aware of any such evidence or fraud here. And I'm not aware of any court. That has found that there was and this is one of the reasons why my objection i as you know i filed an objection to the state of pennsylvania and my objection was centered on how pennsylvania failed to follow their own state constitution and then further how the pennsylvania supreme court then intervened additionally in order to change the, the balloting procedures and change the times in which ballots can be returned these to me are major major uh, issues that are legal issues not factual issues, but legal issues, procedural issues, and constitutional issues that deserve to be highlighted. And I think really for many folks, at least in my state, highlight the kind of and get to the kind of irregularities that they feel uh, were uh, permeated this last election. And so that's why I said, listen, if you look at Pennsylvania, that's what I said on the floor of the Senate that night, the night of January 6th, if you look at Pennsylvania, if you look at their failure to follow their own constitution, Pennsylvania's constitution doesn't permit universal mail-in balloting. And yet Pennsylvania uh, officials did it anyway, and that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, as Justice Thomas has actually recently written about, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court later further intervened and it changed the rules on when ballots could be returned and so on. Those, I think, are are improper. Uh, They were not able to be – neither of those challenges were ultimately able to be adjudicated or were adjudicated. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court refused to hear the constitutional challenge. So that's what my objection centered on, and I think those are important, Hugh, and I think it's important to have a debate about election integrity. We're having it now, and uh, I thought we needed to have it uh, back in January. And I also thought, Hugh, and continue to believe it's my job to represent the views and concerns of my constituents. And I can tell you, my constituents were very, very, very concerned and upset about these reports of irregularities in the 2020 election, and they wanted their views expressed and heard in the Senate and that's exactly what I tried to do.
2: And in a legal fashion the precedent for which had been laid down by Democrats objecting to the election both of Donald Trump and of George W Bush as you point out in the tyranny of big tech introduction I want people to understand that 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 process that was underway before the riot and the insurrection was one developed by Democrats under a statute on the books. Now here's the key thing. The vice president had no authority to return the electoral votes to the states, in my view. Do you agree with me?
0: Yes, that's absolutely correct. I mean, the, the, the vice president is there. to. I was actually asked about this on the night of the 5th, I think, uh, on the uh, Laura Ingram memory serves, so that's not Tuesday night. And uh, she asked me this exact same question. And, I, I, you know, my view is here is that the vice president, it, he doesn't even count the votes. I mean, under statute, the vice president is just there to open the ballot. He hands them. Uh, to the clerks, who then announce them and count them.
2: This is 100% why I object to Legacies media of the coverage of you, of this book, and of the controversy, is they never get to the fact that this is a furrow that is well plowed, being pursued by Republicans for the first time, who were aware that the vice president could do nothing, and that that is what happened. But Legacy media, repeating the accelerant that social media has laid down that you describe in the tyranny of Big Tick, is not intent on telling what happened it's intent on telling a story that benefits their political point of view. Do you agree or disagree with me, Senator?
0: Oh, no, that's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. And you, you hear all kinds of outright lies uh, about this day and about uh, uh, what I did on the day. I mean, for instance, you, you referenced that photograph of me. What, what you'll hear the media, what I've heard the, the lefty media say over and over is is that's Holly out there as the riot, encouraging the rioters, as the riots in progress. So, it, you know, it sounds because, of course, the picture doesn't show any of the any of the demonstrators. It just shows me. So you'd think from listening to them that, oh, he's out there in the midst of the riot and he's cheering them on. Totally 100% false. Completely false. Um, or that the other great lie is that, oh, well, you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and the other senators and, and representatives, about 150 of us, I think, all together, Republicans uh, who filed objections, wanted to have a debate, they were attempting to overturn the results of the election to change the outcome. Also false, Q. Totally and completely false, as I said at the time when I filed my objection, I was asked on day one, are you trying to overturn the results of the election? I said I am no. I am trying to represent the views of my constituents and have a debate. All the law provides for is if there's an objection, you get to have a debate. And as you pointed out, Democrats have objected to 11 states over the last three presidential elections that Republicans won, 11 states. And guess what? They're entitled to do that. The law provides for it. You get a debate. You resolve that with a vote, you move on, and the election is certified.
2: Now, the allure of a false narrative is awfully powerful. And you know uh, we have a mutual friend in common, the Chief Justice of the United States. You know him a lot better than I do. I only worked for him uh, for a year. You worked for him for a year, and you've been very good friends since then. He is the victim of a false narrative about his Obamacare. Uh, uh, decision from the right. There are victims of false narratives that are convenient everywhere in this country. The problem is false narratives used to die from lack of oxygen. Now they multiply like algae on a fetid pond because of social media. What do we do about that?
0: Well, what we've got to do is, first of all, this gets back to refusing to be canceled. This is why, for, for instance, in my position, I just refuse to give into the lie, and I challenge it every time I hear it, and I refuse to, to let them cancel me and silence me. And so you know, when they, they come against me and say, your book ought to be be platform, I said, no, I'm going to go find a different publisher. When they say that you shouldn't go and, and speak anymore in public, I said, I'm going to go on every, every channel I possibly can. When they say, you know, don't talk about election integrity, I said, that, forget, I'm going to absolutely talk about election integrity. I'm going to defend the laws we have in Missouri, for instance, which are election integrity laws, like voter ID, which is not Jim Crow. It's not even close to it. It's an effort to secure the ballot for every single American. One vote, one person, every every vote should count. I mean, that's what we're fighting for. So I think number one is you've got to refuse to capitulate. But number two is with social media, we've got to find a way to dispel uh, the 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 uh, social media contagion and to try and, and break the hold that social media has on our politics. And this is you know, a tough question. I write in the book, Hugh, about my own practice and my wife and I, what we do in our own family to try to make sure social media doesn't take over our family and that uh, uh, these, these mobile platforms, these devices don't completely control our, our lives day to day. We've got to think more about with our politics how it is we begin to free ourselves from the cycle of social media outrage, hate, uh, fake news—that just is—is is the it, it, it's what social media has given us. It's what social media perpetuates, and it is destroying our politics.
2: I think it's a very persuasively argued chapter, Senator. I would only add one thing, which is to practice the discipline of never to attribute to anyone a point of view that they do not hold about which you are uncertain that they hold, because that is ruinous to public discourse. We got to wrap up because we're going to reach the uh, the pumpkin moment in a in a podcast where. It, it People turn it off. I don't want to go beyond 70 minutes, but I want to ask you about my two favorite public policy uh, solutions for dealing with the crisis of social media. The first is to get at Section 230. Would attaching repeal or modification of Section 230 to the debt ceiling have any appeal to you? And would you find Democrats who would join you in that effort?
0: Uh, you know, very interesting. I think that's a I think that's a, a very interesting legislative tactic. I would support it. Would the Democrats support it? I'm not sure about that, Hugh, because you know the, the Democrats have become very cagey, as I said earlier, very, very cagey about doing anything that actually meaningfully challenges tech's power. I really noticed the shift in our hearings uh, on the New York Post, Hunter Biden story, and, and, and the uh, big tech suppression of that story last fall. The hearings ended up happening uh, after the election. They happened in middle November, and I noticed that all of a sudden my Democrat colleagues – were They no longer want to talk about the monopoly power of tech. They no longer wanted to talk about uh, the, the control over news and information. They just wanted to talk about how tech has a duty to censor speech that they don't like more and more. So I, I don't know if Democrats now would support a, a partial or full repeal. I, I would hope that they would, but I just don't know.
2: Yesterday, uh, House Chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, Frank Pallone, he's a Democrat, said whether Trump is on the platform or not, Facebook and other social media platforms with the same business model will find ways to highlight divisive content to drive advertising revenues. He's right. Uh, I think a debt ceiling debate on this is the way to highlight the hypocrisy, because you can do an amendment large or an amendment small. Don't shut down the government over minor matters, but do shut down the government over and, and threaten the full faith and credit of the United States over that which is an existential threat. And this. This accelerant of division is an ex- existential threat to the republic.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. And I agree with everything uh, that, uh, that the, the chair said. And I hope that other Democrats will continue to believe that. And I hope that and recognize that, I should say. And I hope that Republicans will, too. You know, I write in the book about how Republicans' views in the Senate that I've observed have really changed over the last two years. And I think some of that is just a hard experience. As Republicans who have have seen these companies abuse their power, abuse their power in order to accumulate more and more power, abuse their power to shut out competitors, and then abuse their power to censor speech, I think more and more Republicans are saying, we've, we've got to do something about this. And I hope that that momentum continues to grow.
2: Okay, the last area is very controversial, but I took this position five years ago before Donald Trump, which is billionaires bother me a lot. I think they're very, very bad. And I'm always thinking of Marcus Craftus the billionaire of ancient Rome and how he brought about uh, the destruction of an army in Persia. But he was, he was known for bringing up fire trucks to burning buildings and charging his fellow citizens to put out the fire or sell him the building. And billionaire, this concentration level of wealth is bigger than the robber barons. It's actually far greater than the robber barons. If you take the five wealthiest big tech companies, they have more money and money is power in an oligarchy. And an oligarchy is the worst of the six forms of government, even worse than aristocracy. Because, uh, you know, second generation aristocrats gamble away their money or they lose it on stupid schemes. But first generation billionaires are dangerous. What about a wealth tax for people who have more than a billion dollars? I mean, what about going to the people in whom this great almost happenstance of the intersection of need and technology occurred? And who are they're not uh, they are not less genius than they are. But I don't know about billionaires in republics, Senator.
0: Well, I, I share a lot of the same concerns, you. I really do. And, and I think that the, uh, I, this is why I, I write in a book about the danger of oligarchy. And I really feel that we are, we are right on the brink. I had someone ask me the other day if the founders were here today and they walked around uh, Washington, D.C., what do you think their impressions would be? And I, I said I think that they would warn us that we're living right on the, on the brink of an oligarchy with the kind of control of money and power and political influence that these companies and their founders have, this is exactly the kind of political economy that the founders wanted to prevent. You know, and this is what the whole first part of the book is about. It's that yep. the founders were dead set against aristocracy and oligarchy, dead set against it. And they tried to fashion a political economy that would prevent it and if it ever if power ever began to concentrate that would disperse it. And I think we've lost their political economy. We've lost their overall vision of a society and economy and we need to try and recover it. And we need to try and re-implement it. And uh, I think it's, it's an urgent, urgent task.
2: So for the benefit of the woke who are listening to this and are going to be rising up and saying you did something wrong, I know the beard theory of the founding, and I think it's crap. And I know that George Washington had the most wealth of anyone at the time of his death, but it was not mobile wealth. It was land. And the problem here is the problem you describe in the Google FTC response in 2012. When the FTC began an investigation, Google literally overwhelmed the White House and the FTC with lobbyists and agents of their company. By the way, rational economic behavior. But I've never seen anything like it, and I did not know about it until I read The Tyranny of Big Tech. Is there any way to expose that? If you can't stop it, they have a right to have lobbyists. But I've just never heard of a lobbying effort like that. That seems like... Every person, and t- I must be the only person living inside the beltway who is either not elected or not on the payroll of big tech.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you might be, too, and maybe you'll get a call after this. Uh, good for you, by the way, for being independent. I, I do think that exposing it is key. This is one of the reasons why I have pushed for two years now, for my entire time in the Senate, I have pushed the FCC to release their memoranda from that uh, from 2012, uh, from that time period about what they concluded about Google's monopoly power and what the career prosecutors with the antitrust enforcers actually recommended to the FTC's uh, commissioners. And the FTC has consistently, consistently refused to disclose any of that. Now, recently, a bunch of it was leaked from, you know, who knows where. Presumably somebody within the FTC leaked a bunch of it. And we learned that, that the FTC had concluded that, indeed, Google had monopoly status, market concentration, uh, that the uh, that the uh, investigators and the career staff did indeed recommend a full prosecution and uh, that it was shut down uh, politically and I think that we have got to continue to expose this and this is one of the reasons I take the time in the book to name some names about who these tech companies fund and how broadly they disperse their funding and listen there's nothing wrong with as you said tech companies can any any company or individual can try to get somebody to represent them in Washington and represent their viewpoint but I think the people do deserve to know who is who is paying whom and they do need to know how the influences of tech and just how much influence they have purchased over years, because when people say, why why can't Congress seem to get its act together? One of the reasons is the tech's hold on the on the centers of influence and thinking in Washington, D.C. is very, very strong. And they've worked for a decade or more to cultivate it.
2: You know, the only parallel, your friend on the Judiciary Committee, Senator Cotton, has been after foreign influence of the CCP on campuses in the United States. And good for him. I don't want to compare big tech to the CCP. They're not that. But they are value-maximizing agents of preservation of their wealth, and therefore they're going to deploy whatever they can to stop the Congress from acting. And I wonder if we just don't need to expose as ruthlessly. The New America Foundation, I had no idea. I went and looked it up. I went and got their 990. You know, Michael Lind, who you quote approvingly, is a New American Foundation recipient, I believe. And so the New American Foundation, everyone who works there, is not bad, but they are a Google. I I mean, that story is kind of a shutter story. Google took the money away. They shuttered and disemployed all these people when they got into into tech criticism. We just need to know who's paying whom. We just always need to know where the money is.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, And I think with tech has gone to some lengths to conceal that by uh, setting up uh, different nonprofit organizations that they fund but that don't appear to be directly related uh, to tech. And then those nonprofits go out and they forge links with academics and so forth. And that whole web just needs to be brought into the light of day. And I try to do some of that in the book, but it's an ongoing process because tech continues to pour money, to dump money into these efforts at persuasion and influence in Washington, D.C. The only thing that that I noticed about this town here is that, again, in my short time here, I noticed that all of these, to your point, billionaires and these massive multinational corporations, they seem to be exceptionally well-represented. The the problem is is that I I don't notice too many uh, ordinary folks who can afford legions of lobbyists and who seem to be very well-represented. And that's really the the problem, is that the, the views of the everyday parent who are struggling to keep their child off of these platforms, to struggle with the, addict, the addictive consequences of these platforms, are struggling to keep their data private. They're not really getting much of a voice, while these tech companies have a very loud megaphone. That's a problem, and I think we've got to re-
2: redress that. Two quick exit questions. Have you ruled out running for president in 2024? Yes. Okay, so you won't be but you'll be running for re-election. Second one. Uh you make a point of noting that you would not accept Mark's invitation to go meet with him. Uh I didn't at first either but I eventually yeah, I eventually went and had dinner with him. He's a great guy and I, I had he, he reciprocated, came to dinner with me. And I actually believe when you get into a small group, especially if you get on one-on-one with the tech barons, you could persuade people. Uh, are you going to continue to refuse to do that? Or are you afraid of losing your independence by simply breaking bread? It, it's sort of in our creed that we ought to do that.
0: Yeah, I think that I think, Hugh, that there is a danger for an elected official to go. And in, in my case, in particular, uh, to there's a danger of being co-opted and co-opted for a photo op. You know, when they say, oh, well, we had Senator Hawley here and, and here he is. Here's photos of us at Facebook and we're all looking very happy and cozy together. I think for, for me. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a private citizen now in this capacity. I'm, I'm an elected official accountable to the voters of Missouri. I need to maintain my allegiance to them only and maintain my independence vis-a-vis everybody else. Now, I did sit down with him. What I said to him was, I'll sit down with you, but I'm not going to go uh, – the, the appearances matter. I'm not going to go out to your headquarters at Facebook and have a private meeting. We're going to have to do this somewhere, either, uh, either in Missouri, my home state, you know, where we're on my turf, or you can come to, to Washington, D.C., to my official uh, office, and we could do it there. But I think it is vital to me to maintain my independence, and that's true, by the way, for, for all of these different entities. Whether we're talking about the tech companies or other companies or other interests, my independence is, is absolutely non-negotiable, and I think it's what the people of Missouri expect of me. So I'll talk to anybody, and uh, I'll work with anybody across the aisle, but I'll always, always fight to maintain my independence.
2: Congratulations, Senator, on the tyranny of big tech. It's a bestseller. It's going to stay up there if I have anything to do with it and uh, press on. I'm sure Legacy Media is a difficult place to go, but please keep being an evangelist for this point of view. I think we need it, and you cannot sell too many copies of the tyranny of big tech. Thank you so
0: much, Hugh.
2: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as
1: well today. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Imagine a Catholic priest blessing couples cohabiting rather than marrying or polyamorous households or any other relationship rather than sacramental marriage. That might sound laughable to people inside and outside of the Catholic Church, but that concept might become a reality in Germany next week. Priests and lay ministers plan to conduct public blessings of same-sex relationships, defying an edict to cease from Pope Francis and the Vatican. This activism has no basis in Catholic teaching, but instead is intended to pander to popular opinion and tax revenue, which German churches receive based on affiliation. This has serious ramifications outside of the Catholic Church. The Vatican has remained firm on its core teachings on marriage and abortion, one of the few global institutions to resist a wave of relativist reconstruction of truth in scripture. A German assault on the integrity and authority of the Catholic Church will damage everyone who works to spread the truth of the gospel. I'm Ed Morrissey. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, preparing leaders in politics and policy. Learn more at
0: publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.